Welcome to the September 21st, 2023 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. First on today's podcast, real-world evidence for CAR T-cell therapy in older patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Outcomes are favorable, yet treatment uptake is low, especially in patients 75 years of age or older. Up next, inhibiting endogenous anticoagulant pathways in congenital factor deficiencies. A high-affinity monoclonal antibody targeting activated protein C demonstrates efficacy in hemophilia A and B mouse models. Finally, targeting the HSP90 epichaperome in acute myeloid leukemia. In preclinical studies, treatment with an HSP90 inhibitor boosted the efficacy of venetoclax treatment. This also inhibited outgrowth of TP53 mutant AML cells. Our first research article is titled Real-World Evidence of CAR T-Cell Therapy in Older Patients with Relapsed Refractory Diffuse Large B-Cell Lymphoma. And the first author is Dai Chihara of the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. Diffuse Large B-Cell Lymphoma, or DLBCL, is the most common lymphoma and predominantly affects older adults. The median age at diagnosis is 66 years, and nearly 30% of patients are 75 years of age or older. Treatment of older patients with DLBCL can be challenging due to multiple comorbidities and poor performance status. And regardless of age, outcomes are poor for DLBCL patients who are refractory to first-line therapy or relapse following an initial complete response to therapy. However, the treatment of relapsed refractory DLBCL has undergone a paradigm shift due to the availability of CAR T-cell therapy. Three CD19-directed CAR T-cell therapies have indications in patients with DLBCL that is relapsed or refractory to at least two previous lines of therapy. And there have been a number of studies providing evidence confirming the benefits of CAR T-cells among patients treated in a real-world setting. Some of these demonstrated that efficacy and safety outcomes after CAR T-therapy were comparable in older and younger patients with DLBCL. However, there is only limited data on how age and other factors impact treatment outcomes. To address this evidence gap, authors of the current research article leveraged Medicare claims data to assess the clinical and economic impact of CAR T-cell therapy for DLBCL in patients 65 years of age or older. There were almost 79,000 patients with a diagnosis of DLBCL between April 2016 and December 2020. The analysis focused on patients who had claims coded for DLBCL, plus a subsequent claim for a code for CAR T-cell therapy between January 1, 2018 and December 31, 2020. Patients who received CAR T-cell therapy in a clinical trial were excluded. Altogether, 551 patients met these criteria. The median age was 72 years, and 54% were male. Most of these patients, 83%, received CAR T-cell therapy in an inpatient setting, where the average length of stay was 21 days. Notably, the use of CAR-T therapy in DLBCL patients 65 and older appears to be quite infrequent, particularly in the oldest patients. Looking at Medicare claims, CAR-T cells were used in the third line of therapy or later for only 19% of patients aged 65 to 69, 22% of those aged 70 to 74, and just 13% of those 75 or older. Among the 551 patients with DLBCL who did receive CAR T-cell therapy, the median event-free survival was 7.2 months. 
The 12-month event-free survival estimate for patients 75 or older was 34%, which was significantly shorter than the 12-month event-free survival of 43% for patients aged 65 to 69, and 52% for those aged 70 to 74. The median overall survival was 17.1 months, with no significant differences detected between those three age groups. Investigators also report healthcare utilization and cost outcomes over a 90-day follow-up period. Among the patients receiving CAR T-cell therapy in an inpatient setting, 29% had one or more rehospitalizations over that time period, and 30% had at least one visit to the emergency room. Inclusive of CAR T-cell administration, the median total healthcare cost was almost $360,000 over the 90-day follow-up. That was similar or slightly lower to the cost reported for younger patients. And the total cost was similar among those aged 65 to 69, 70 to 74, and 75 or older. So what's the takeaway? According to investigators, this is real-world evidence demonstrating that CAR T-cell therapy use is very low in older patients with relapsed refractory DLBCL, especially those who are 75 years of age or older. And this is despite favorable effectiveness that they say is comparable to outcomes seen in the pivotal phase two studies of CAR T-cell therapy. However, the results also highlight the low rate of event-free survival in patients 75 or older. That highlights an unmet need for more accessible, effective, and tolerable therapy in that age group. So the use of CARs, so to speak, put age in the rearview mirror. That's the title of a commentary on this study by Ciara L. Freeman and Frederick L. Locke from the H. Lee Moffitt Cancer Center and Research Institute in Tampa, Florida. In their commentary, Freeman and Locke say that uptake of CAR T-cell therapy has been limited in older adults despite studies demonstrating the benefit of this treatment approach. The biggest barrier to uptake is that many older patients are not referred to specialized centers for consideration of CAR T-cell therapy. Freeman and Locke say chronological age influences the decision-making of oncologists who are uncertain about eligibility and concerned about comorbidities, impaired function, caregiver support, travel burden, and costs to the patients and society. While these concerns are valid, they can also result in withholding or attenuation of potentially curative regimens. Let's move to the next research article. The title is Safety and Efficacy of Anti-Human Activated Protein C Antibody SR604 for Prophylaxis of Congenital Factor Deficiencies. The first author is Miao Zhang of the Jiangsu Institute of Hematology in Suzhou, China. Maintaining hemostasis is important for the prevention of bleeding and thrombosis, but in patients with clotting factor deficiencies such as hemophilia, this delicate balance is disrupted. The result is diminished thrombin generation and clot formation, which promotes bleeding. The standard of care for patients with hemophilia is factor replacement, though for patients who develop inhibitors that neutralize the therapeutic effects of these products, alternatives are needed. And now we do have non-factor products. The most prominent one is emicizumab, a bispecific antibody to factor 9A and factor 10, that is remarkably effective, but only in patients with hemophilia A. Recently, an alternative strategy that has received increasing attention is the rebalancing of coagulation and anticoagulation through the targeting of endogenous pathways. Promising efficacy and safety have been reported for concizumab, a monoclonal antibody targeting tissue factor pathway inhibitor, and for fetusaran an investigational small interfering RNA therapy targeting antithrombin-3. 
Yet another strategy along these same lines is to target activated protein C, or APC, due to its key role in regulating thrombin generation. Protein C is highly expressed on vessel walls and is also found in small quantities in plasma. When activated by thrombin, protein C downregulates the coagulation cascade. So attenuating the anticoagulant effects of activated protein C could help promote the generation of thrombin in patients with bleeding disorders. Multiple therapies targeting APC have been developed as potential treatments for hemophilia, including, most recently, monoclonal antibodies. However, there is one important safety consideration with this therapeutic strategy. Namely, APC not only has an anticoagulant role, but also has cytoprotective and anti-inflammatory properties. And interfering with those functions could have negative effects, such as exacerbating inflammatory disease, as has been shown in preclinical models. With that in mind, APC-targeted monoclonal antibodies have been designed to attenuate anticoagulant effects without perturbing APC signaling. That's relevant to the current research article. Previously, the authors reported on a murine monoclonal antibody that blocked the anticoagulant activity of APC, but not its cytoprotective and anti-inflammatory functions. That antibody improved clotting defects in preclinical studies, but it did not fully restore hemostasis in mice, even at high doses. Now, these investigators have developed a humanized chimeric antibody called SR604 that is based on that previously reported murine antibody. SR604 targets an exocyte in the APC protease domain that is central to APC's anticoagulant activity, but not essential for anti-inflammatory signaling. As reported now in blood, this therapeutic candidate blocks the in vitro and in vivo anticoagulation activity of APC with affinities approximately 60-fold higher than the prior murine antibody. The efficacy of SR604 was shown both in coagulation factor-deficient human plasma and in tail bleeding and knee injury models using hemophilia A and B mice expressing human APC. The humanized antibody shortened clotting times in a dose-dependent manner in ex vivo experiments using coagulation factor-deficient plasma. SR604 had similar efficacy as compared to recombinant factor VIII in limiting tail bleeding from humanized hemophilic mice. SR604 also reduced joint bleeding and arthropathy in a knee injury model using these mice. Furthermore, administering SR604 did not interfere with APC's cytoprotective effects or endothelial barrier function in mice, as studied in an LPS-induced systemic inflammation model. Interestingly, SR604 actually accelerated a critical anti-inflammatory function of APC, namely proteolysis of cytotoxic extracellular histones during acute inflammation. Finally, there were no observed toxicities in humanized hemophilic mice, and pharmacokinetic studies in monkeys showed that subcutaneous SR604 injection was highly bioavailable. Taken together, these results suggest that SR604 could be a safe and effective therapy for patients with congenital factor deficiencies, including hemophilia A and B. In a commentary on the study, Roger J.S. Preston of the Irish Center for Vascular Biology in Dublin, Ireland, said these data support the potent inhibition of anticoagulant activity by SR604, along with a reduced impact on APC anti-inflammatory activity. However, Preston added, Further studies are needed for more detailed assessment of whether or not SR604 modulates other APC signaling functions. He said further research is also needed to determine whether SR604 affects APC signaling in chronic inflammatory disease settings where endogenous APC is known to be protective. And of course, clinical trials are needed.
Nevertheless, the efficacy, safety, and pharmacokinetic data in the present research paper suggest that SR604 could be a, quote, exciting addition to the growing range of pro-hemostatic non-factor therapies, unquote. The final article is titled, Epichaperome Inhibition Targets TP53 Mutant AML and AML Stem Progenitor Cells. And the first author is Bing Z. Carter at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. Venenoclax, an inhibitor of the anti-apoptotic protein BCL2, has demonstrated substantial efficacy as a treatment for acute myeloid leukemia, or AML. Combined with the hypomethylating agent azacitidine, venenoclax is considered a standard of care for treating patients with newly diagnosed AML for whom induction chemotherapy is not an option. Yet the emergence of resistance is a concern. Exposure to therapeutic agents results in dominance of TP53 mutations, which confer resistance to multiple therapies. Treatment with venetoclax and azacitidine is associated with mutations in TP53, RAS, and FLT3 that are key determinants of resistance and early relapse. Thus, there is a substantial unmet need for treatments that are effective regardless of TP53 mutation status. One promising line of research has been to target epichaperones, pathologic protein assemblies containing chaperones, co-chaperones, and other associated cofactors. Epichaperones maintain aberrant signaling network essential for the growth and survival of malignant cells, for example, by stabilizing oncogenic kinases, including FLT3 and RAF and transcription factors, such as mutant TP53. And a key player within the epichaperone is heat shock protein 90, or HSP90, a chaperone protein recognized for many years as a potential target of therapy. The problem is that HSP90-targeted therapies have been limited by toxicity, as HSP90 is not specific to cancer cells. However, the novel inhibitor PUH71, or Zelevespib, selectively targets HSP90 in cancer cell epichaperones, and it has limited activity against CD34 cells and peripheral blood leukocytes. PUH71 has already been studied in phase 1 clinical trials, including patients with lymphoma, myeloproliferative neoplasms, and breast cancer. And in a case report, compassionate use of PUH71 in a patient with relapsed refractory AML resulted in long-lasting complete remission. In the present research article, Carter and co-authors describe an extensive set of experiments involving PUH71 in human leukemia cell lines, primarily AML cells in vitro and in xenografts and PDX models. First, high-throughput drug screening using TP53 mutant AML cells identified HSP90 inhibitors as top hits. The investigators were also able to demonstrate that epichaperomes were present in TP53 mutant AML and AML stem progenitor cells. By contrast, no epichaperomes were found in normal bone marrow cells, implying that they would be unaffected by inhibition of HSP90 with PUH71. Selectively targeting those epichaperomes with PUH71 resulted in anti-leukemic activity. Investigators reported death of AML cells and TP53 mutant stem and progenitor cells following PUH71 treatment. Furthermore, PUH71 synergized with venetoclax in both AML cells and in AML stem progenitor cells with TP53 mutations. As part of this, PUH71 decreased expression of anti-apoptotic MCL1 and increased levels of pro-apoptotic BIM, enhancing the activity of venetoclax as a result. 
As further reported in blood, PUH71 was associated with downregulation of other signaling proteins, including phosphostat-3, ATK, phospho-ERK, CMYK, HSF1, and HIF1-alpha. And finally, it's important to note that PUH71 had minimal impact on normal hematopoiesis, both in vitro and in vivo. Of note, the investigators also simulated the clinical scenarios in which a small initial number of TP53 mutant cells proliferate under the pressure of therapeutic selection. And in this scenario, PUH71 was able to suppress both TP53 wild type and mutant cells. By contrast, BCL2 and MDM2 inhibition only reduced TP53 wild type cells, favoring outgrowth of the TP53 mutants. The commentary for this article is titled Targeting the Epichaperome to Combat AML, and the authors are Shah Lee and Peter D. Adams of the Sanford Burnham Prebis Medical Discovery Institute in La Jolla, California. Lee and Adams say this research demonstrates that targeting the epichaperone boosts the effectiveness of venetoclax in treating AML and inhibits outgrowth of venetoclax-resistant TP53 mutant AML. According to the commentary authors, resistance to venetoclax is an issue that is persistently frustrating to patients, clinicians, and researchers alike. And adding venetoclax to azacitidine doesn't confer an advantage in patients with TP53-mutated AML and poor-risk cytogenetics. They say this article focuses on a critical area where there is a substantial gap in meeting the medical needs of patients with TP53-mutant AML. In particular, the study provides compelling evidence that the epichaperome inhibitor PUH71, added to venetoclax treatment, is a potent and synergistic combination regimen. As such, the research opens new possibilities for therapy in patients with AML, and especially in those patients with TP53 mutations. Accordingly, Lee and Adams say it's time to add TP53 mutant AML to the list of target malignancies in which PUH71 should be explored, though further research is needed to optimize its dosage in combination with venetoclax. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.